Are you a person in the helping professions who maybe is doing public service loan forgiveness and isn't sure that it's a real thing? (laughs) Or maybe you are really interested in this notion of creating a nonprofit or creating your own practice or doing some kind of consulting work but don't really know how to get from A to B, so you're just sort of doing the grind at an agency and feeling unheard or not acknowledged or um, underpaid or all of those things. Yeah, I get you. listening to Help for the Helpers with Dana Belletier. Today's podcast is mine. The story is mine that I'm telling. Typically on Help for the Helpers, we are telling the stories of people that are doing radical, out-of-the-box things to create lives and careers in the helping professions that feel true to them and that meet their own wants and needs and allow them to take excellent care of themselves. And I have a story about that too. That's why I wanted to do this in the first place. So I thought it would only make sense to share my story with you first so you could get to know me and also so I could participate in this and not just make other people share about themselves and not share about me. So in order to help do that, I enlisted my friend Liam O'Donnell because I didn't want to just talk about myself for 40 minutes. Um, So he's the other voice you're going to be hearing on today's podcast, asking all the important questions and saying funny things and insightful things. Um, And we're both super glad you're here. So I hope you enjoy today's podcast, which is my story. do anything you can just start you know what I mean it's really up to you how you want to begin this whole thing yeah no let's just start it so my hey, first Dana. thing hi Liam <laughs> well I know I, I mean I guess one of the places to start would just be to say to you like Dana you're starting this new project this is about telling your story uh, how do you find yourself in this position like how do you find yourself in a place where you want to tell your narrative tell the story of how you got personally and professionally to this point (laughs) right um i think it's super important so one of the things that i thought about with this um has been kind of gathering and telling stories of helping people that have Mm. managed to create a life for themselves that feels authentic and fulfilling and meaningful in all of the ways that they want and need it to. And the whole reason that is even important to me um, is because I feel like that's something I have at least somewhat successfully been able to do for myself. Mm. Um, And if I'm in the position of asking other people to share about what is happening for them and their personal lives and their stories and, you know, what they've gone through professionally and personally, then I think it's important for me to be willing to do that as well. So 
Well, I, I'm sure to a certain extent, not everyone who's listening knows about you or knows why you're sort of leading this conversation. So this is a way for them to get to know you a little bit. Yes, which I think is important, too. So they can at least understand that um, there's a lot of ways in which I think I'm able to relate to the traditional pain points that people in this mm. field experience, because I think I've managed to hit like every one of them within the space of my career. Um, and I think that's important. So people can, can trust that I have some ideas about what I'm talking about and, and can relate to uh, some of the reasons why this work is really difficult, which it is. Yeah, it certainly is. I don't, know anyone who is involved in anything like a helping profession who's like yeah everything is normal and i have total normal work-life balance and <laughs> my finances are totally fine and i have i don't deal with stress every day it seems like a, a profession that asks a lot of you do you feel like you're at a point now where you have some sense of balance i mean in, in other words wh where how would you describe where you're at right now uh as a as a person in this in this arena. So you actually you asked me a few weeks ago or you said something about things being hard or like right. my life being hard or something to that effect and I was like no Liam. I was like but no like my life isn't hard. <laughs> like it's not anymore is what you said. <laughs> it actually doesn't feel hard at all. Um and I think that that's I think that's I think that what I feel like I have finally managed to do, having been in this field for almost 20 years, which is insane, um, is get to a place where I feel like I am doing my career on my own terms and where I'm getting to control and make choices about what I do and why I do it and how much of it I do. And if something new or exciting shifts for me or interests me, um, I feel like I have a certain amount of permission to pivot that way um, and to indulge different parts of myself within the space of my work that wouldn't have even occurred to me, you know, five years ago, certainly not 10 years ago or, or beyond that. I, I think there was just very much a mindset of you, you sort of get what you can within the space of this field and that's it. Um, so now that I feel like I'm on the other side of that and I feel like so much more is possible, I think it just, just, it just feels important to share that with other people um, that are also doing this because it is truly my core belief that there is no one else more deserving on earth than people who do helping work. And if they are able to do that kind of work while still finding great fulfillment and um, the ability to thrive within their own lives, you know, that's that just feels like um, the optimal goal. Right. For sure. For people. It's interesting to be with you to help you tell this story because we literally met in college about 21 years ago now. And then we moved in as roommates 
a decade ago. So it's like, I, it, it, you know, those corny uh, questions like, what were you listening to at 10, 20, and 30 to like get a feel of like the points in your life? I'm like, well, I knew you at 20 and then I knew you at 30 and now it's another 10. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I was there for those points. And so I'm aware of something like an arc. Like, I'm aware of some of those moments in your life, but I don't actually have a feeling of like, you know, we leave college together. I kind of only have a vague idea of like where you were going and how you started in this thing. So we should probably start there. So people have some idea of like the kind of transition that happened. Right. So how did you get started in this? And why didn't you burn out after two years the way everyone else I know did? Oh, no, I did. I just ignored it. Oh, okay. (laughs) I just, I just ignored that experience. Sure. Of course. Well, that Um, sounds familiar. Yeah. So, yeah, that also was why you are like the perfect person to be doing this, because you've known me for like my entire being a person. Um, (laughs) So so I started, I feel like I've been doing this in some way forever. Like even you could point to hallmarks of who I was as a person in high school and be like, yeah, like I'm going to be a therapist, whether that's good or bad. I don't know. That's like its own other entire podcast, but that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we went to college together, I double majored in psychology and sociology with the intention of practicing therapy. And that was, that was pretty much the only thing I ever wanted to do. Um, so I think, well, for like a brief moment, I wanted to like be an actress and also like be on the Mickey Mouse Club. But besides those things, when I was like 10, um, I've been pretty single minded about this stuff. Um, so after college, I worked for a little while in a residential treatment facility, which was hard um, and came to the real- realization really fast that if you want to be doing this work um in a way where you get paid like anything at all, (laughs) um, then you need to have a master's degree. So I went, I went back for a master's degree when I was like, I think 22 or I mean, I didn't, I didn't work very long before I went back. Um, and then went back for a degree in human development and then straight out the gate. Um, when I started doing uh, master's level work, I started the same way lots of people do where I had three jobs right off the bat. And like, that was very normal. And this, everyone else that was also doing this had the same kind of setup. So nothing occurred to me that there would, this would be like weird at all. But I was working at a nonprofit where I was driving around to people's homes and doing in-home work um, for about 10 hours a day, all day. You couldn't get health insurance with that job. It didn't come with the job. And this was pre the whole thing where you can stay on your parents' health insurance until you're like 26. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I worked at Starbucks from um, like 4.30 a.m. until 10 every day. And then I did the nonprofit job. And then on the weekends, I was an on-call crisis person. So I would come in whenever they beeped me to do assessments and stuff. And that's what I did for, I think, about three years just starting out. So, like, right out the gate, I was super set up to be like, okay, like, this work is hard. This work is hard. This is what you do. Like, the help is its own reward, but it's hard. And that's just what it's going to be. What 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 was helping you 
get through that though? Like what about that was like feeding you or making you want to keep going? Cause it seems like that's already a disastrous situation that you're in. Right. <laughs> so like thing one, I think is just, I mean, again, its own podcast of growing up within a religious affiliation and just being told that sacrifice is like super important. And you just sure. kind of like, <laughs> you just kind of assume that you're going to have to sacrifice forever. So I honestly, I think it just didn't occur to me that this was, there was something weird or unsustainable about this. It was like, this is just what you do. And then also just the modeling of it. Like you go, you do go to school. And I know lots of people that have had this experience in their graduate programs where it is just blatantly told to you, like, you do not do this for money. You do not do this for your own, like, health or well-being. Your life is going to be really hard. You won't make anything. You probably might get sick. The agencies you work for probably might not care. And, like, that's just what it is. Um, so I think you're also kind of, at least for me, um, prepared in a way to be like this is go this is going to feel a certain way and it's going to be super hard but like that's the that's the work of the the social worker or the helper so like so some of what is hard about it is actually validating you're doing the thing you were told you were going to have to do to matter sure and like isn't that like the <laughs> The whole thing with martyrdom anyway is just right. you can just feel super good about all the ways in which your life is sucking. <laughs> well, and it allows you to answer the, the it's almost like the suffering answers the effectiveness question, which is the, one of the most painful things about being in a helping role of any kind is uh, how actually effective are you? Well, you know, you must be doing something right because you're suffering so much. The suffering takes away the question of, am I helping at all? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's absolutely true. It's like a validation that you're helping if you are having a difficult experience. And to be fair, again, I don't know that I was even in touch with it. When you're working that much for years at a time, you don't, there's not time to sit and be like, how is this impacting me? How's my physical health doing? Like, how's, how are my relationships? And especially when you're like a 24 year old, you're just grateful to be working at all, or at least I was. So right. it wasn't even something that I examined. <laughs> it was just, this was just how it was. So what'd you do after these three jobs? So I did that for a while. And then I met uh, Jane Trimble, who became like my mentor, who um, was a social worker in a school on the main line. And she had an opening for um, like a mental health consultant within the school. And I loved working with adolescents. That's predominantly the population that I worked with. That's what I like focused in on the human development program and everything. So um, I went to work with her and I did that. And then I did summer times um, when school was out working at a partial hospital. And then I still did the on-call crisis work. So I still maintained two jobs for a while. Um, but that was exponentially easier than the sure. first, just because like it was less time. Um, it was still, it was still a lot and it was still hard, but I, I do think that, I mean, Jane, I got very lucky earlier on in my career to have the support of someone who was, I think both really gifted and also just just always available to emotionally kind of take care of me, 
which was I just so important. And I think I think really let me um, kind of get to a place where I was ready to kind of launch into the career in a more meaningful way individually when I was finished up with that job. But I, w- I was there for seven years. So I did that. Wow. For a while. Yeah. And that was that was because of Jane. Jane was terrific. She she was awesome. So I, I hope most people are that lucky to get a mentor that really sees you and is interested in how you're doing while you're doing the work as like a young person. I just think that's so important. So I did that. And then I went and did some work at the partial hospital for a while um, after the school, because the school, the contract with the school um, eventually went away. That was something that was happening in the Philadelphia area a lot, is that schools that had mental health services or social work services um, were losing funding or um, it just wasn't made to be such a big priority anymore. So it was kind of being taken out of a lot of the school systems. Um So then I worked at a partial hospital for a few years, and then I decided to go back um, for a degree in social work because I couldn't get a license. That's what I was wondering is I knew you had gone back. What was sort of the catalyst to be? I mean, you've already done at this point a pretty significant amount of school. So going Mm -hmm. back is not an easy decision to make. Mm -hmm. What sort of put you in that position where you're like, okay, I got to do it. I got to at what were you, 27 at this point, 28? I went back... No, I went. I went back then when I was thirty-one. That's 30. not an easy decision to make, especially for another master's program. How did you get to this point? Oh my god, I had to. <laughs> <laughs> I I tried every which way to not. So like I I went. I tried to like supplement. So okay, for licensure, you have to have like a certain amount of credits in very specific things in order to be eligible to sit for this license. And then you have to gather all of these, you know, hours of, it's like a very long, tedious process. Um, But my human development degree was not meeting things, meeting all, it, it met some of the requirements, but not all of them. So, um, so because of that, I, kept trying to like piecemeal it together. Like I went to Villanova Mm -hmm. and I took all these supplement. Did you even know I did that? I took all these supplementary courses. Yeah. I knew you were going to, I think that's the last time we even talked about it was you were saying that you were going to Villanova to take courses, but I wasn't sure why that was the move or what? Yeah, because I had no other choice. So I, I was going to Villanova, taking supplementary courses, trying to plug those in. The board was not having it. So finally, I was like, if I want to get a license, um, which you really need to be able to kind of practice, it, it just it opens up so many doors within the field to be a licensed professional as opposed to an unlicensed professional. Um I had I had to go back to school. So Jane was a social worker, and that's what she recommended. I go back for social work, and that's what I did. So I went back for master's number two at a very hefty price tag at, at Penn. Where, where, where did you go? You went to Penn? I did. I went to Penn that's twice. Also, I went to Penn for both also- of them. Those are those are that's also a serious school, right? You didn't like you weren't going to like, you know, Clyde's night school or something. You know what I mean? Like you were <laughs> like, okay, I need to go back again for another master's. I'll just go to like the closest Ivy. Let's just do like, what's what's a what's the what's a prestigious school I can go to without having to really rearrange my life is sort of what you did. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I I love school. I'm like a giant I, nerd, though. Yo, I, no argument there. <laughs> so, what did you do out of so? So, you go to Penn. You're you know kicking it in in uh, one of the more prestigious schools in our area at the time. Neither one of us live in that area anymore. But at the time. <laughs> um, and then uh, what did you do after that? How did what what was the move now that you were a licensed professional? I wasn't licensed. So you <laughs> How what did you have to do to get licensed? Dude, Liam, you can't even oh my God. It's so ridiculous. Okay. So <laughs> I graduated two year program. So now I'm licensed sure. eligible. So then oh, okay. you have to in order to be licensed after you are licensed eligible, you have to get depending on the state, between three and 4,000 hours of supervised experience, right? I know, just like thousands of hours. Um, you need to pass a test. You need to... Those are like the primary things. It's mostly just the years of experience and um, and the test passing. But even to like get a supervision agreement in place to get the hours is like its own insane, annoying thing. But... What this I, is after you've acquired your second master's from yeah, Penn. I know. Now you're going into this supervision and test process. Correct. Yes. Cool. I know. Right? Thank you. <laughs> and so then what are you doing professionally? Are you still uh, doing what you were doing before this? Are you... What, what, where, where does this lead you in your career after your thousands of hours of experience? Well, so we decided... So my husband and I... Initially, I was like, I want to just... I'll do this in a school, right? But like I mentioned, the Philadelphia area in particular, there were not opportunities for school social workers because school social work is like not a thing anymore. Um, so... I decided that I was going to do my hours at a residential program in New Hampshire just for something like new and totally different. I had done yeah. my internship at a residential program um, in undergrad, you know, like 11 years before this or something. Right. Um, and worked with teenagers plenty and, and loved doing that. And so that's what I picked to do. And I could get my supervision for free there. And that's like, that's where we're going. So just to like, bring us to where we are, this has now been over a decade's worth of work, right? I have been working at least 10 hours a day, no matter what job I was doing, even in like the cushiest of situations, sure. all of these jobs require a significant, significant amount of time and energy. Um, a lot of emotional energy spent. Um, and now I have two master's degrees. So when I graduated from Penn, which is important, um, I had $101,000 in student loans. Oh, God. Which is not even weird. Like, that's normal. Sure. <laughs> um, and that's kind of what I was taking with me when I started this new job in New Hampshire. So that job is really, I think, just the that last experience is where things really started to come to a head for me. Because now I'm in my 30s. I'm working on um, getting this license and sort of looking to independence in terms of practicing. I have a good amount of experience under my belt. Um, but things, you know, I mentioned like initially... 
I just wasn't in touch with the difficulty of things or the toll it was taking. When we moved to New Hampshire is when things started to become obvious to me in terms of how hard this actually was. And I think that this, a lot of helpers that I've talked to have had this experience where it's like you just sort of hit a wall and you kind of see the difficulties associated with this stuff. And then once it becomes apparent, you can't unsee it. Right. So for me, what that looked like was I had this significant financial burden, right, that I came Huge. in with at $101,000. I started out making, I think, like forty seven grand at this job, which to me was mm. like, cool, I've never made this much. Um, to anyone I, outside... I, too, have never made that much money, by the way. I mean, well, but that's, like... <laughs> I, I also think that there's a lens that we look at things through right. where like that that seems like a tremendous amount of money and that's that's not a small amount of money. It would be a lot more money if you didn't have two masters, uh, a backbreaking certification program and a hundred grand in debt. That's a big chunk of money for someone who maybe just has a bachelor's and is just starting in their 20s. That's like a, whoa, I'm really living the big life. But yeah, you get to an age where you see that number and you go... I guess that's okay. I, I guess I'd be okay. Right, right. And there's just no framework for it. It's like, this is more money than I've made before. And like, I'm doing something that I think is really important. So that's all super great. So let's go with that. But <laughs> when you have that kind of student loan burden on your back and you're paying like the minimum amount to, I was on um, the the thing where you get your student loans forgiven after 10 years, the, the student loan forgiveness program. Yeah. yeah. The, the, I don't think, I don't know that it exists anymore, but yeah, the thing that may or may not be real. Um, I was in that, <laughs> which is its own nightmare in terms sure. of like every month I would send them a, like the payment and then they would like say, well, you paid it three days late when it wasn't late. Cause I'm not late for anything. Trust me ever. And they would, you know, be like, well, but you still have to capitalize this anyway. And one year they made some kind of mistake um, with how they process things, which resulted in $9,000 being added to my student loans at the end of the year. And I talked to them about this and I was like, you can't, this isn't okay. This isn't my fault. And they were like, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because it's going to be forgiven. And I was like, well... (laughs) It does, though, because when you see your student loans going up to like $110,000 plus, that makes you have a small heart attack. So it does. But fast forward two years of having been at this job, my loans, because of interest, had grown with me making minimum payments every month of between twelve dollars and $1,400. That had grown from $101,000 to $121,000 on this program. Um, so that was terrifying. That. I mean, we're in a dark place in the narrative right here, Dana. I'm assuming this, that we're making a turn at some point. Well, we're but... almost there. We're almost <laughs> okay. there. Okay. But wow. That's, I mean, and that's one of the things, um, w- <sighs> this is not a student loan podcast, but it is worth mentioning that 
paying your minimum payments is almost basically a way of saying, I'm going to commit to this for the rest of my life. In, in many cases, it's just a way of saying, this will never end, and I will just continue to live this way forever. And I know that as someone who is making income-based repayments and will probably never pay it off. Right. Right, right. But isn't that all of our, I mean, that's the accepted experience. Right. It's very unusual for us to do something different. So we do just kind of accept that that's the case. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that had I not seen that balance continue, that balance going up was stressing me out. Because at the same time as that was happening, what I was finding is that this job was just not a good fit for me. This sure. this was a job in which I was doing supervisory work, so it was salaried. So there wasn't this isn't like a you do this from nine to seven. Like you do this from nine until your work is over. <laughs> which right. which it is ne- that endpoint never materializes. So I would say, I mean, you know, 60 hours a week is probably pretty regular for someone doing that kind of work, which many people do 60 hours of work a week. Okay. Um, But in addition to that, the nature of the work was not built for someone like me. You know, this this Mm. was working with... um, Teenagers with significant, complex emotional profiles, which was great, um, but there were a lot of questions about safety and how things were being done and what poli- you know, what the procedures were for things that I thought were really important. And I would be bringing these to the attention of the people that worked above me, and there just didn't seem to be a lot of concern. A lot of it was like, yeah, I think you just need to, Dana, like figure out how to deal with this. And I'd be like, "Mm, (laughs) do I though? Or like, is there actually a really big problem here? Um, And, and it just, it, it just wasn't the right fit. So what was also happening now is, and this is, I think something that a lot of people in this field can relate to this feeling of being trapped where it's like, I need to stay in this job for 10 years to pay off my loans, which are now at $121,000. There's no way I can pay them off making the kind of money that I'm making, you know, ever. (laughs) And I'm not feeling heard or taken seriously or even totally safe within the space of where I'm working. At the same time, I'm starting to have all these physical issues, um, which I think is probably just a manifestation of doing emotionally difficult work for a decade plus right um that's now coming to a head where it's like they don't really know what's going on with me but something's going on with this digestive thing and something's going on with this head thing and some you know all these different things making it more difficult to work and you know i have to can you can't take days off doing this kind of stuff um so things are starting to look really really scary <laughs> where it's like <laughs> I need to either figure out how to change this or I might just go down with this ship. Like, I'm not sure what other options there are. Um, Mm. So that's where we land somewhere around the beginning of or 2016, 2017. So not super long ago. Not that long ago. Not that long ago at all. Um, And so that is where I was like, I need to do some kind of big, bold thing Mm. for myself or 
you know. So you, you robbed a bank. I exactly. That is what happened, and that is the end of the story. <laughs> That's great. You should sell that. That's a script right there. No, really. I mean, you, this is the this is the ultimate scenario that people burn out in. In that you're undercompensated, you're over debt, you are not tre- you're not getting the emotional satisfaction or the financial satisfaction or the professional satisfaction that you need. You because of all these stressors, you're physically not able to work at the level that you feel like you need to just to survive. Uh, yeah, this sounds like a, a, a ship sinking situation. Yes, it, it felt like a ship sinking situation to where there was lots of crying. There was lots of feelings of hopelessness. Mm. Um, and so I was like, all right, I got to do a thing. Um, so what I started with was figuring out I need to make a plan for my money because that is so scary to me that I'm just going to keep seeing this go up and up and up and I, I need to figure it out. So I need to make more and I need to get rid of this debt that's on my back. Um, that whole story is its own series, but, um, I did a ton of research just looking at like, what are all the money people saying? And what do you, you know, how much can I rely on this student loan forgiveness program, which turned out to be like, not really. (laughs) Mm. Um, And uh, I made the decision that I wouldn't be able to stay at this job for those 10 years. And I didn't trust the program. And I'm just going to pay the debt off myself. So if I have to pay off $121,000 in debt, that means I need to not be making 47 grand a year. Not because there's anything wrong with making 47 grand a year, but that's like a really small shovel for a really big hole. Right. So um, the first decision that I made was I'm going to need to leave and go work somewhere where I'm going to be able to make more money, which I went to a group practice and found out really quickly that I could more than double my income just doing that. Wow. I know, which was massive. So like I had to see many clients and it was its own thing, but I that choice was massively freeing because I could say, "Okay, I can continue to practice this. I'm now a licensed person. I I have more earning power and I'm going to make the choice to focus on paying myself because I need to in order to get this stressor off my back." So that's what I did first. Um, And then the second piece was really looking at what do I need to do for my health and my wellness and all of that, you know, all of those things. And so I did need to put a significant amount of time and energy and financial resources into getting that put together because that had fallen apart pretty significantly, which I think happens to a lot of people, too, who do this. Yeah, because your body just absorbs all the stuff that you aren't feeling right emotionally or, or giving yourself permission well, and self, self-care takes time. And so if you feel like you don't have enough time to live, to take time to do the other things you need to do, you know, anyone who's worked with folks living in poverty knows self-care is not really high on the list when you are in survival mode. So even though you weren't necessarily living uh, under the poverty level, you were living in a situation where it felt like you didn't have a lot of space and time to worry about things that actually are necessary, but were taught are like frivolous or not that important or side projects. And I do the same thing, you know, like I'm a type one diabetic. I need to worry about my diabetes, but sometimes that's the, 
that's the job I take the least seriously, and it should be probably the one I take the most seriously, but it's just culturally discouraged to do that. Right. Yes, I think that's okay. And to point out that it's culturally discouraged and then within the space of the helping professions. Oh, sure. For some reason, it's like taking care of yourself. Is this really it's just you are a selfish person. And that's that's not universally true. There are many people who don't who reject that notion that are in the helping professions. But man, if you go on any Facebook group board of therapists, there's still people getting on people for prioritizing their own needs above what might be needed for a client or a population or whatever the case is. It just, you really get shamed for that. It's really weird because the, as far as I know, in the bit of research I've done, the concept of self-care actually comes out of helping professions. It comes out of people who are sacrificing, and yet it's been entirely absorbed by the rest of the population who I don't think actually in a lot of cases need it as much, you know? If you are if you're a middle manager making 100 grand a year and you're like I need to I need self-care right now. It's like maybe you do, but this idea actually came out of people who are emotionally uh engaged almost 24-7, and it wears them out, and they need to take care of themselves, or the work they do will be bad. It won't be good. Mm-hmm. They will burn out. Right. Their lives could like end up in total disaster. And yet, even though the idea came from social workers and activists and psychologists, all these people who are giving of themselves, they're the ones who are also the most skeptical of it. It's like, yo, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't even know this is something we need to be concerned about. And yet, often it's like, no, 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 that's good for other people, but I'm going to just giving give and give again that martyr complex comes into play yeah it takes right back to that whole idea that like we are we are taught from the second we enter into we start to get educated in this field that we are not the important people the people we are serving are the important people and so if there's some kind of question between you know if if it's you leave at 8 p.m. or you stay that extra hour to see that person who can only see you then and needs that attention you better believe you're working till 9 like that is what the setup is um so yeah so step <clears throat> step 1 was this new direction that gave you more money mm-hmm. what else did you do were there other changes you had to make to kind of get moving in a different direction oh, all the things yeah so the so the more money and then the focus for on the physical health which which took its own amount of money as well as like time identifying providers that were really actually helpful which took I would say it probably took me about a year and a half to get my body back to a place where it felt like me again Um, Mm -hmm. It took a long time and and other things like doing yoga and all this other stuff. But I had to really prioritize that because um, that had degraded to to a degree I hadn't even like realized, but that it was becoming difficult to just do, you know, regular, normal, everyday stuff with what was going on for me, you know, in all sorts of ways that... That, that I won't go into, but it was it became life limiting. So I had to r- spend a lot of time there. Um, and then I had to take a really good look at like what was happening for me emotionally um, mm. and process what that experience was and come to terms with the fact that I largely felt kind of abandoned by and abused by and taken advantage of by a system that I had devoted my entire life to w- working in. Um and so, you know, that required therapy. 
<laughs> that that required a lot of kind of thought and and time to myself just to figure out how do I want to be doing this? How do I want to be doing this in a way where I actually make room and space to respect myself? Do I want to even continue in this field, which I ultimately decided I did, but I knew that it had to look really different. So right. emotional spending some some real time just looking at what I needed to take care of myself and what that really looked like and realizing that I you know, I worked with some brilliant people that run on adrenaline that can work. 12 hours at a time, you know, in really like high stakes, semi unsafe situations where they're putting their body on the line and and they feel great. If I do that same thing, I'm out of commission for like a week. So I need to be very real about the fact that like my own needs in terms of taking care of myself might be very different from other people that do this work. And that doesn't mean I'm Mm. an inferior person um, or a worse helper. That just means mm. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I mm-hmm. can do something else. So that was um, that was a massive piece too. Is just working on my own emotional well being, um, and then just like thinking about logistics, I had to prioritize what I actually wanted my life to look like. You know, one thing that came up after I sort of got my breath again and and got back to where I felt like I was standing on my own two feet was that I had I had lost sight of so many of my social relationships. Like so many people that had been very important to me that that helped me to function every day, I just never connected with anymore because all I did was work for years. Right. Um and if I was going to be able to continue to to be not only like a well person, but a person whose life was interesting and fulfilling in any way, I needed to make space for that. I can't, Mm. I cannot have a job or jobs where they take up so much of my actual time and emotional energy that I don't have space for my social relationships. I just can't. Um, So I had to kind of come to terms with what I wanted that to look like and make sure that that became a priority again as well which I did very intentionally. Like there are, <laughs> if you look at the difference between what things looked like socially for me three years ago and what they look like now, I mean, it's, you know, it's totally different. Okay, so let me set this scene for you. I was 35 years old, working at a residential program 50 plus hours a week, making less than $50,000 a year on public service loan forgiveness with nine years to go, two graduate degrees to pay for that totaled $101,000. I watched my interest accrue as I made minimum payments until my balance hit $121,000. I felt terrified, anxious, unwell, and I was sure that I couldn't stick it out to have my loans forgiven without having a mental breakdown. Do you relate to this story at all? Then I have a program for you. So I have a four-week group intensive program rolling out in January 2021 that will identify your stuck points and create an individualized plan for you to get out of student debt so you can be financially free. You'll work with me and a small group of like-minded individuals to follow the process that I did to pay off all my debts in a few years while increasing my income and cultivating a more satisfying career and lifestyle. Do you want to learn more? Visit my website at danabelletier.com and check out the Help Yourself Group Intensive. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. 
Well, and I'm sure these are all of a piece, right? Like the more financial freedom you feel, the easier it is to make time to see people, the more physically healthy you feel, the easier it is to make time to see people. And also seeing people encourages you to care about your emotional well-being. All these things kind of net together. It's really easy to separate them and say, I've got to hit all these uh, separate points, but actually those things kind of work together holistically. Right, right. And and I, for a lot of people, that's a no-brainer, right? Like, they just do that stuff. <laughs> not not me. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, the no, I, there's very few things that are a no-brainer for me, honestly. <laughs> you do all those things that, well, to certain extents. <laughs> Some things better than others. But, um... What uh, what I moved into through this, eventually I moved out of then the group practice into a private practice yeah. um, because that afforded me even more ability to focus on all of these things and then also hit on another spot that I felt like was really important, which was allowing for some kind of creative outlet within my life. Right. Which I just had totally neglected for, I mean, come on, that's like... <laughs> on the hierarchy, that's like, who gets to do that? Come on now. That's like you know, a luxury. That's for, that's for uh, totally spoiled rich people. It's right? for get totally to spoiled rich people. I know. Um, but by this past year, I had gotten to a place where, oh yeah, like that's coming up for me. That part of me really wants mm-hmm. to express itself. And guess what? Like I've done enough work over these past few years where there's actual space for that to exist. And I can make room for that within to to work in tandem with the work that I'm doing with my private practice, all it can all fit. And now I can continue to feel like I'm, I'm a whole person and not just like serving, um, serving the work that I do. So to fast forward kind of to where we are now, I've been able to get to a position where after working like brutally hard these past few years to figure out finances, we are now all of that debt is gone, which is insane. Um, but like incredibly freeing, <laughs> of course, um, cause that was scary. Um, physically, you know, I'm in a good place. I think I'm a person who always needs to pay attention to what's happening with my body. Cause my body is the first thing to absorb any kind of stress or to know when anything is wrong. My body knows before my emotions do. Yeah. Um, but that's obviously, I mean, that's a much better place. And then emotionally, it just feels like things are, um, not just like, okay, but that, that life is fulfilling and that day to day, you know, I could identify that, like, I feel like I'm thriving and these are things that, you know, are, were so foreign. I mean, it's from the survival mode that we were looking at when we got to, um, things getting really hard just, you know, five years ago or however long, um, so that is kind of the arc of how things went. Mm. Yeah. And I feel you, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. I was just I feel I feel like it's just important to like pinpoint all of those pain points between the finances and the physical stuff and the emotional stuff mm-hmm. and like logistical social stuff and then the even the creativity because I just I think that these are things that we lose sight of when we're doing this work really easily and Unless there's intentionality given to building these things back up, we just assume we aren't going to ever going like have them again. Like we just mm. accept that 
we're never going to be financially secure or we're never we're going to have this chronic health issue because we're always stressed out or and and it just becomes like this acceptance over time. Um, And I see that happen with so many brilliant, gifted people that work in this field. And Mm. I think it's important to point out, I don't I don't think that has to be true. I would suggest that this is not unique, obviously, to helpers, though I think it does uniquely affect helpers. So I think it's pretty common that people probably find themselves in a ditch. I think the difference with helpers sometimes is that sometimes you think that's where you should be. You know, that sometimes when other folks who are in different kinds of professions find themselves in this place, they might accept it, they might not, but they don't necessarily see it as their purpose. They don't see it as like the fulfillment of their telos that they are suffering. But for some reason, people who help other people are like, not only is this situation unworkable, but it's actually what I've been expecting to happen the whole time. And it's maybe not what I deserve, but it's what is entailed in order for me to help. And that seems to be not necessarily true. Right. Yes. Yay. That's exactly right. Yeah. You've made all these changes. You've done all this stuff. What are the what are the what are the sort of like things that you can sort of pinpoint like okay, I identified these these places of pain and I've addressed them significantly. What sort of creatively have you learned from that? What is sort of like a like what are some of the things that like uh, have informed you or or, or uh, changed how you see the world because of those those uh, uh, experiences? Hmm. I mean, I think that the major shift in terms of seeing things is this idea that um, that helper that that helpers deserve to be in a place where they can have all of the things that they want and need. And that is okay. And that Mm -hmm. there doesn't have to be something inherently selfish with that, which I think is a label that just immediately gets slapped onto anytime we want to prioritize ourselves. Um, That we can do really good work, really important work that impacts people's lives and that helps people feel better in a wide variety of ways And we ourselves can also be thriving, healthy people that I would even go so far as to say that are well compensated, which I know is like a, you know, kind of controversial thing. Um, uh, But I, I think that what I've come to is these systems that we have a tendency to work for as helpers are operating under the belief that help is its own reward and that we should be willing to do all these things no matter what the cost is to ourselves because we get to be the people that do the good work. And I think that it does not have to be one thing or the other thing that these two things can exist where we can value ourselves in in real ways and even ask ourselves questions about, you know, what are ideal situations are and work towards those things for ourselves while at the same time remaining helpers and have all of that, have none of that be any kind of um, judgment on what kind, you know, how good of people we are. 
I might even argue we are better equipped to help other people when we are operating from this place of of thriving and wellness than not. I, I mean, I, I can't help but think that if you don't have an imagination for your life that includes you feeling like a, a, a at least something like a happy whole person, how do you have that imagination for the people you're working with? I know. How can you imagine that future for them? It's, I think that's a fair argument. But I think that so many of us have done it where we've come from this place of like, if you ask people who are in this profession, especially younger people, like in their 20s, like what they want and envision for their lives, you're going to get a lot of answers having to do with all of the ways in which they want to make the world a better place and, and do good for humanity and change things, which is beautiful and brilliant and necessary and fantastic, but is also deeply flawed because... You you cannot do that kind of work for any extended period of time unless you are also giving the same kind of attention and time to yourself. It, yeah. Yeah. There's, I feel like there's more, so much more that we can continue to say about this, but that's kind of what this podcast is. So I don't know that we'll have to say it all in this episode, but I'm really glad we got to to have this conversation, not just because I think it's a good intro to what your your project is and what your goals are and what you're hoping for, for what we're doing here, but also because I got to learn even more about what was going on with you. Because like I said, I've checked in at these various times, but now I got to see some of the webbing that led you to this place uh, where you feel like you have something to share with people. Yeah. Thanks, Liam. Thank you for... <laughs> for interviewing me <laughs> <laughs> no problem <laughs> i'm sure we'll do it again i did not want to tell the story by myself so i appreciate is, it. is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up i think those are all of the things i think that that is the the arc of what my story is and i'm just really excited to hopefully be able to share more about what other people are doing and how um, more of us might be able to kind of actualize this idea of having authentic, fulfilling lives. You've been listening to Help for the Helpers. That's the show. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about the podcast and my work, you can find me at danabelletier.com, where you can also find information about my Help Yourself program to get you out of student debt and take control of your life, career, and finances. See you again next week. <laughs>